Gracious God, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for this time when we can gather, when we can slow, when we can sit up, when we can pay attention. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, but mostly that you would simply be with us. Lord, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is New Year's Day today, the one day when all our New Year's resolutions come true. Uh, or you need to set them to all start tomorrow, in which case you have two days when they're all true, and then we can work from there. Uh, but it's also a great time to take stock of what has been and to look forward to what could be. Uh, what worked for you in this past year? What were the times of joy and goodness? What didn't work for you in this past year? When were those times that were not so good, times that you weren't all you could be, and which of those could be changed in this new year? Or maybe we could get at this this way. As we look back at who we were this past year, do we like what we see? Could we have done better? Could we have been better? And at the same time, let's also cut ourselves a little bit of slack since most of the time, most people are simply trying to do the best that they can. But today we then turn the page and we ask what could be different in this new year? What should be different in this new year? I mentioned it in the sermon on Christmas morning, and I've been thinking about it ever since, but I wonder if part of the miracle of Christmas is not only that Jesus could be born as one of us, but that we can be reborn more like Him. What if that is part of what we celebrate during this season? Not just that He was born one of us, but that we can be reborn more like Him. Because the Bible seems to imply that we actually can be changed, born again, made new, recreated. And we're not just talking about little tweaks and edits here. We're not just talking about a, a new year, a blank slate. We're talking about God making us into new creations. And I think in many ways, this is in large what we find intriguing in small about a new year. Not just that we can try again, not just a reset, but hope that we can actually be changed, that we actually can become better, that we can be made into something new. Of course, as we think about this kind of thing, we recognize that there are different directions we could go different goals we could pursue, different values we can prioritize. In fact, if you've thought about New Year's yet, I wonder what your thinking reveals about your various beliefs. Because what if we have some right resolutions for wrong reasons? What if we have wrong resolutions for the right reasons? I mean, sure, 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 eat better, exercise more, absolutely, but why? So that you'll look better, live longer, be stronger, live 
more faithfully serve better? You'll notice it's the same resolution, but the reasons vary and change how they're done, why they're done. It's funny, so often I think we almost always know what to do in order to live better. We know the how. The trick is always the actual doing of it. And again, going back to that Christmas sermon, maybe it's not as much about the practices we do, but maybe it's about becoming the people that God sees that we can become, that God made us to be. Even more to the point, what if our actual resolutions reflected what God seems to be inviting us towards? What if our goal in this new year was to become more like Jesus? Has that made your list yet? What if we were born again like Him more in this new year? What if He became the metric for how we measured ourselves in this new year, trying to live up to who He is? In other words, what if we were not just trying to become better Christians, but what if we were trying to become better disciples? And again, the crazy part of the Christmas season is that God seems to believe that we can. God seems to believe that you are worth it. God seems to believe that you have what it takes to be more like Jesus. God seems to be hoping that you can follow Jesus better because it means you will live better. I wonder how that would change not just our year, but our lives. While we think about that, let me remind you again where we are and where we've been. Today, we come to the end of our Advent and Christmas series as we've been recognizing that all too often in our lives, we just don't have that much room for Jesus, even in this Christmas season. And we talked about it many, many times. Uh, she wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And we recognize too often the same is still true for us. There's just no room for Jesus, even at Christmas time. To make matters far, far worse, as Christmas turns into New Year's, we start getting overly busy all over again, looking at what we can do and could do and should be doing in this new year, and again find that there's still no room for Him. As much as we were supposed to let every heart prepare Him room, we also recognize we still haven't made very much space for Him in this new year. Now, again, to be fair, it's New Year's Day today and you're here at church, so, so far, you're actually doing pretty good, but I know what Monday and Tuesday bring, and that's the challenge. What if we could be different in this new year? What if we could make a little bit more room for Him in this new year? What if He could change us? in this new year. Let's finish this series by turning in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, 
verse 1 through 23. And it reads like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. This poor, poor family had a heck of a Christmas. First, they arrive, they had to travel out of town during the holidays to see the almost in-laws because, yep, she's pregnant. Uh, then there's no room for them in the inn, and she gives birth. 
And as if that's not crazy enough, you've got a manger for a baby's crib, you've got shepherds showing up talking about angels, and then there are these magi, these kings, these wise men, these foreigners from the east showing up and bringing these weird, weird gifts. And as if that's not enough, you find out that King Herod now wants your baby to be killed. And so now you're fleeing the country, a refugee going toward Egypt, which allows you also to just miss a massacre that happened in your hometown. That's how the first Christmas went. How was yours? You know, presents? You get what you wanted? Just to finish the story, the family is getting comfortable in Egypt after a year or two or three or four when they get the news that they're now allowed to return. But as they're returning, they find out that the son of the former king is now in charge, and so again they are forced to flee. Now, before we go much further, it's probably helpful to make sure that we understand the stakes of our passage and our Christmas. Because it's important that we notice the gravity and the ramifications of what's actually happening here. The wise men ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Of course, here's the problem. There already is a king of the Jews. His name is Herod, Herod the Great. And and so the wise men are asking the king of the Jews, where is this one who has been born the king of the Jews? It's funny, so often we get so caught up in our context of this story, thinking about the baby in the manger, and then everything we've got going on, the gatherings and the gifts and everything else, and we forget that Jesus was born as a king. And the problem is, if you already have a king, or you already are that king, and there's talk of another king... Well, now there's a revolution, now there's an insurrection, now there's some kind of rebellion, now there's an uprising. The message of the angels and the shepherds and the magi are all, in some ways, almost a declaration of war. Because to say a king has been born has profound ramifications to the king who already is. I mean, to say that Jesus is the king of kings means that all other kings aren't. It means that all other governments and politics and cultures and systems are subjects of and to that new king, which means everything is changing. The reason that we worship the baby in the manger is because we recognize the inauguration of a new king and thus a new kingdom and thus a new people that live under the reign of this new king, live in the realm of this new king, live under this new reality of this new king. The point isn't the baby. The point is that the new king has come. All that to say, Herod does what he does while being atrocious and morally reprehensible and just generally terrible, in some ways also makes sense, simply in that at least he understands what's actually happening here, why this story is so crazy, which I worry sometimes we miss. But with that, what does that mean? 
more particularly as we look back at our passage and we look at the wise men and we look at Joseph, what does this passage mean for us in this new year? And the things that stand out to me, especially about the wise men and Joseph, is how they follow faithfully and, and how they worship sacrificially. They, they faithfully follow and they sacrificially worship. This is how they live out their faith. This is how they respond to the newborn king. And I can't help but think that that might not be a bad model for us as well, particularly as we strive to be better disciples in this new year. And so let's start by looking at how they are able to faithfully follow, as we also hopefully see how we might do a better job of following as well. Because the first thing that I find remarkable about our passage is how they are so willing to go wherever God leads. And we start with the wise men. They are from the east. They are traveling far in pursuit of the king. They're enduring hardships. They're risking persecution and retribution from Herod, not to mention all the dangers that would have gone along with them on a journey like this. And all of that just in order to be faithful. This was a long and arduous journey, and so that, and all so that they could just bring gifts to a baby and then head all the way back home. Even just the duration of this trip is worth commenting on. And I'm not totally sure that this is completely right, but, but you'll notice Herod asks, when did the star first appear? When was the exact time that the star appeared? Presumably, that was when the journey would have started. And then later, when he recognizes that he's been duped, Herod kills all of the infants two years old and younger, which causes me to ask, did the star and thus their journey start two years prior? Now, again, Herod's a little crazy. He may have just been playing it safe. He may have rounded way, way up. But it strikes me that if they saw the star appear two years ago, then it'd make more sense for Herod to kind of set that as the age and work your way down. All that to say, this was a huge sacrifice and a great distance for the Magi, for the wise men, to travel in order to be faithful. Hey, look, there's a star. And I don't know what you have on your calendar right now, but go ahead and clear the next two years. Let's go find where that's leading us. Actually, go ahead and erase the next two years because we probably need to come back afterward. So just wipe your calendars for the next four years. We've got a star we've got to go after. This was a huge distance that they were willing to go in order to follow. We see the same willingness in some ways in Joseph as well. God calls him to, to take Mary and go to Bethlehem, and he, and he goes. Then go to Egypt, and he goes. And then come back from Egypt, and he goes. And then go to Nazareth, and he goes. God calls, Joseph follows. And in each of these examples, there's this step-by-step, -step, one foot in front of the other quality of faithfulness sometimes with not much of a destination or goal in mind, but just 
following where God leads, willing to do and live and serve as they're called, when they're called, where they're called. The real irony for Joseph is that he actually ends up where he started originally, and yet wouldn't have been the same had he not gone to where he was called. Frankly, we assume the Magi also make it back home as well eventually, but changed because of their encounter with the king, changed by their faithfulness. I wonder, if you were called to go, if you were called to stay, if you were called to change, if you were called to serve, would you be able to follow? Would you be willing? Would you be willing even if you didn't know what the outcome, uh, outcome would be? Would you be willing to give up some of your own plans in order to faithfully follow? I'm struck too by just how little they have to go on here. The Magi are following of all things a star which seems a little bit vague. From there, they are getting directions from Herod, who doesn't even know that something has happened in his realm. And then finally, they're warned in a dream, and so they sneak away from Judea. Joseph has even less to go on. He's simply warned in a dream, and then he radically changes his plan three times. Now, I can't say that I've ever been warned in a dream by an angel. But I do have some weird dreams, and I have to say it would still be hard for me to greatly change my plans based on anything that's ever happened in a dream. That, for me, that's not a good star to guide, be guided by. Let's just go there. But the important part in all of this is that they're willing to go where God leads. Wherever God leads, however God calls. They're willing to do whatever God calls them to do, even if it doesn't seem to make much sense or to be part of their plan, even if it's well outside of their way. Maybe that's the bigger point and example of their faithfulness. They're willing to follow. In this new year, I wonder if we could cultivate a greater awareness of God's voice and a greater willingness to answer that call. Is this what it looks like for us to follow better in this new year? The other thing that we see in our passage is how everyone's instinct, when they first encounter the baby, is to worship the newborn king. And it's worth noting that their worship is always sacrificial and costly, which in some ways shows how much they value the king, the, the Messiah. Even the very reason that the Magi used to explain why they've come all this way pursuing a star was so that they could worship the new king, as if that would just naturally explain everything. We take this kind of for granted because it's part of the Christmas story, and we all know they came from the, and the thing, and, they, like, and we followed the star to find the king. Why? So what? That's their reason. 
We came all this way, possibly for two years, bringing all these expensive gifts to worship the newborn king, obviously. Why did you travel probably hundreds of miles, leaving everyone else at home, risking everything, possibly for years, not to mention these expensive gifts you brought? Oh, worshiping the newborn king. Well, duh, that makes sense. And yet, in all reality, that is the proper response to a newborn king. That is the proper response to a Messiah. That is the proper response to God born one of us. which I find interesting because very few people today in our culture would conclude that anything or anyone is worthy of worship. And that's if we even understand what that word means. Too often, at best, we've equated that word with coming to church on Sunday morning. Where did you go on Sunday? I went to worship, meaning I went to church, meaning I went to the church building instead of seeing what we're doing here as an act of worship. It's the thing we do when we come. In fact, in fact sometimes we, we simply call the hour that we share on Sunday mornings worship. And don't get me wrong, worship is what we should be doing during this hour. But worship is about much, much, much more than what happens in a church on a Sunday. Worship at its simplest is about ascribing worth to something. That is important. That has value. That is worthy of worship. To put something up on a pedestal is worship. To designate something as different, to put it up as important is worship. If there's something you really, really want in life, you in some ways are worshiping it. You think about it, meditate on it, dream about it, hope for it. That's, that's worship. If you have something of value, you probably worship it. You take care of it. You create space for it. You talk about it. You think about it. That's, that's worship. If there's someone in your life that you put ahead of others, you are in some ways worshiping them. You love them, serve them, cherish them. You give them your energy and your effort and your time. That's worship. And that's all good. Now, if you worship the wrong things or people, or if you worship the right things, the wrong amount, well, then that creates all manner of very, very serious problems. It's always bad when we take something good and we turn it into God. God is good, but if I take something good and make it into God, that's, well, we have a name for that. We call that idolatry. We have taken something good and made it an idol, and that's a whole different sermon for a whole different time. That being said, the thing we are to worship best and most is God, which is why we see those in our passage doing just that. The Magi travel to and find the newborn king, and then they offer him costly gifts as a way of expressing their worth giving, their, their worship to the new king. And of course, we are to worship God like this as well, valuing Him most and best. 
with all that we do and with all that we are. Garrett Gustafsson says, Worship is the art and attitude of wholeheartedly giving ourselves to God, which Jesus said should involve our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Worship is the art and attitude of wholeheartedly giving ourselves to God. Maybe that's our invitation in this new year as well. To put Him first and most in our lives and to faithfully follow Him better. Maybe this is what it looks like for us to be reborn more like Him in this new year. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You for the example of the wise men who pursued You, sought You out, despite the cost, despite the distance, despite the challenges, despite all the other things that they could be doing. They chose to seek You. We pray that we would be a people that seek You first as well. We pray that we would give You our worship, all of our worship, recognizing You are God. So, Lord, as we begin this new year in worship, we pray that you would help us to follow you better, that we would become more like your son, Jesus, that he would be the measure of how we live, of who we are, and that that would change everything. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you continue to be faithful As much as we enter into a new year, you have always been, always are, and always will be faithful. And so we thank you, Lord, for your consistency and your goodness and your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.